Welcome, Jeff Johnston, host of the Living Undeterred podcast, and I have a special treat for you today. Um, Mike McCarthy is a gentleman I've watched from literally afar uh, since he's in the UK. I really admire the work that he's done for suicide awareness and suicide advocacy. And, um, you know, today today will be a tough show. We're going to talk about uh, mental health challenges that we have uh, in, in the Gen Z space and even in the in the adult space. Um, but I think what I'd like to start with Mike is just, uh, introduce you to the show. Thank you very much for so many things that you do to bring attention to these important issues that seems to, um, seems to not get talked enough about, but, uh, welcome to the living under podcast. And, uh, again, maybe give our followers and listeners a little background where you are zooming in from and, um, we'll go from there. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for inviting me, Jeff, and thank you for your interest. It's it's much appreciated. And uh, the more that I've spoken to people in the States, the more I've recognized the fact that, you know, there are so many similarities between uh, our two nations when it comes to suicide and suicide prevention. Um, I'm a former journalist, uh, a television reporter and presenter. Uh, I used to work for the BBC and for at Sky News here in the UK. Um, I've really travelled around the world covering um, stories uh, ranging from uh, terrorist atrocities to wars. I was in Afghanistan and Iraq um, to a whole range of stuff. I was always a generalist, never really specialised in anything, just always appreciated the variety of, uh, of, of the news world that I was part of. And, um, yeah, I thought that I'd built up quite a, a tough shell over the years. I thought that I'd seen and heard about most things that are, are going on out there. I'd certainly witnessed trauma uh, at first hand. Um, and uh, I retired, sort of thanking my lucky stars that I had a, a, a great career to look back on. It was the, the ticket of a lifetime. Mm-hmm. And uh, if I had my time over again, I would do all of that exactly the same. Um, But I have to go to the 20th of February, uh, 2021, to begin telling the the story as it is now. Um, I went to bed and sometimes wonder, you know, did I appreciate the great things that I'd I'd got in my life, the wonderful family, close family, um, the good life that I'd had, the career that I've just mentioned. And the honest truth is that I can't remember. And, and in all um, truthfulness, I, I guess the answer would be that I didn't really fully appreciate how happy I was and uh, how contented uh, we were as a family. Mm. I got a call at three o'clock, uh, 3.30 in the morning from my son's fiance uh, to say that she'd found our beloved son, Ross, who was 31, and that uh, it wasn't looking too good that the ambulance crew were there and that um, she'd call back as soon as she had any information. Uh, She called back five minutes later to tell us that uh, Ross had taken his life. Mm. Um, So, yeah, we packed our bags in the middle of the night and we drove the two hours to where Ross lived. Um, And that's where this whole kind of new existence began where a whole new life started. It felt as though we were in a world that we weren't meant to be part of. We were in a reality that we didn't recognize. Mm. And we were kind of, it felt as though we'd been shunted off a railway track onto a different journey that we weren't meant to be taking. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, yeah, that was two years ago. Um, last week was the uh, second anniversary. Yeah. Of, of, of Ross's death and um, things, as you can imagine, are very different mm-hmm. now. Well, I hope you can feel the hug I'm giving you right now. Um, my heart goes out to you and for you and all the people that have been impacted by by that um, that moment. Uh, two years, I again, you really admire your courage. Uh, I, what you've done in two years since Ross's passing is heroic in my eyes. It took me much longer to get to where I'm at. Um, I think everybody has their own path, you know, their own, their own pathway to how, how you navigate through this. 
And so that's one of the reasons why I wanted to get you on the show is hear your story. Obviously, where you will have what you have done in two years is amazing to me, Mike. Um, I, I admire. I, I know it's tough. I, I mean, it's hard every day for me, and I can only imagine for you and your family. And um, it changes you to your DNA, and it doesn't do a lot of good. And I had this conversation with your friend Steve. You know, to go back and play what if games. You know, but we all do. Uh, I'm, I'm sure if I were to ask you the question that people probably do ask you, especially with, um, with suicide, our son's death was fentanyl was, a, a, you know, would you have done anything? Were there signs that you, that now you see in high, you know, we all have the benefit of hindsight, Mike, you know, hindsight's always correct. But when you do allow yourself time to go back and look at opportunities, do you see things that you missed or signs that? Ross was reaching out, but didn't really ask to reach out, but things he were doing. Cause I, I noticed things with our son that I missed and I learned from him and I try to carry that forward, you know? Yeah. Uh, and first of all, uh, Jeff, you know, I stand with you, uh, whenever I speak to someone who's been bereaved in the same way that I have and my family has, I, I feel an instant bond with right. them and, you know, people are very kind and compassionate, but I think I certainly wouldn't have been able to understand this situation had I not had to live with it. Yeah. In terms of your question, um, you know, with hindsight, I think it's one of those things, and I've heard this from a lot of bereaved uh, parents, brothers, sisters, uh, etc. Um, you know, you can tell yourself that you did everything that you could. We were a loving and close mm -hmm. family. Ross was open about the severe depression that he'd mm -hmm. suffered for 10 years. And we talked about it. He knew that we loved him and, uh, you know, we, we it, it was a, a sort of mutual, mutual sort of uh, love that we, that we had. Um, the, there are things now looking back that I wish I'd noticed. Ross got very good at pretending. He was quite a selfless individual and didn't want to, as he saw it, inflict his pain and his sadness on other people. So started to pretend that he was happier than he was. And I think, you know, no matter how old your kids are, you know, they're still your kids. Ross was 31, but it was just my my kids. Sure. You know? And um, yeah, I, I think back now and, and wonder was he really as happy as as he made out to be on this particular occasion, on this party or this anniversary? Was he going through the agony then, but protecting us by suppressing it? Um, even though, you know, as I say, we, we, we talked about it. Um, he got a little boy, Charlie, who was three years old when, when he died. And uh, again, you know, he lived for Charlie. And um, so you can, you know, you can sort of have this conversation in, in, with yourself in, in your mind and kind of tell yourself that it's okay. You did what you could. You know, you were a good dad. You were a good parent. But then, as you probably know, that there are questions that emerge of their own accord, you know, almost subconsciously, um, a voice inside your head that says, should I have done this? Should I have said that? Could we have done better? You know, and that horrible feeling that, you know, you weren't there. And uh, I guess that this is going to be, you know, an, an eternal thing, that feeling that if only I'd just been there to comfort him so that he wasn't alone, you know, in those, those final minutes. But um, I do believe that suicide is never the answer. It just does not really solve anything and i agree with the experts the academics the clinicians out there who say that in almost all cases suicide uh, is preventable um i i don't think ross chose the right path mm -hmm. uh, there's no two ways about it but there's something in me that makes me proud that he recognized that there was a cause to be championed in a world that he wouldn't be part of because he left a long letter 12 pages oh, wow. And in it, one of the things he said was, please fight for mental health. The support is just not there. 
And what he meant by that was that uh, he'd suffered with severe depression, as I say, for sort of 10 years, went to ask for therapy and was put on a six-month waiting list and died two weeks into the wait. And this is something that I've come across now. I've lost count of the number of people that I've spoken to for whom that is a very familiar story. Um, and, you know, when your son asks you to do that as, uh, I guess, his dying wish, you know, please, Dad, help mm -hmm. other people like me, you don't refuse, you know, you, you've hmm. got all the motivation that you yeah. need to sort of go out there and, and do <laughs> do as he asks. Uh, so that's what I'm just sort of trying to do, just do my bit really to um, make sure that the voices of all of those that we've lost are still heard, that their death meant something and that we can, um, you know, follow their experience to help other people who find themselves in that same dark place. So that that's basically what I'm just trying to do. Well, there's a story in within every story, and I've come up with this life statement for me. I call it my unique life statement. It's purpose becomes passion when it gets personal. And it's on the back of our shirts. It's on all my presentations. It's pretty simple. Purpose becomes passion when it gets personal. It's like I'm 56 and, you know, it took me a long time to find my passion. In a 32-year career of being a financial advisor, I thought that was my my impact. My footprint on the world was setting up IRA and retirement accounts. And then death enters my life. And then it enters again when my wife died that now it's an opportunity to be a better, a better man, not a bitter man. And so I think your words hold true. And anybody watching this show that, you know, had, has had something happen in their life, you have to find a way to look at it as an opportunity. Um, whether it's an opportunity for yourself to get healthier whether it's an opportunity for you to share your story, to find people that can relate to it, to, so another child doesn't go down that road. Uh, or just, like I said, the people in your life become better. You know, some, something has to come out of this where we're not just surviving, Mike, but we're thriving, right? I mean, who wants to, who wants to survive? I, I don't want to survive. I, shit, I don't have time for that. I want to thrive. And, People can say, well, how can you laugh, Jeff? How can you smile? How can well, you know what? It's easy to when you have when you're grateful for the things that you have and you honor the people that aren't here anymore by living an intentional, good life. And that's what Ross would want. That's what Seth would want. That's what Prudence would want. And they're by the way, they're right over my shoulder here. Um, and I, you know, in our app that's coming out this summer is named Brighton, and that's Seth's daughter. You mentioned you mentioned Charlie. Um that is part of the legacy. And when Seth died, his daughter Brighton was born three weeks later. So Seth never got to meet, you know, at least Ross got to meet Charlie. And I bet you're grateful for that. Right. I mean, there's little nuggets, there's Absolutely. little nuggets you got to hang on to. Yeah. I couldn't have put it better myself, Jeff. And I, and I think that, you know, somebody said to me um, early on in, in the stage of recovery, I guess, you know, after we lost Ross, that, Learn to be grateful. Teach yourself about gratitude. Yeah. And at first, I didn't really mm -hmm. understand exactly what that meant. And as time has passed, I think I've realized more and more exactly what that person was, was saying. And, you know, you do find comfort in just the odd compassionate word or, <laughs> yep. you know, anything, you know, the, the birds in the trees, you know, the sunrise, whatever. Right. Uh, plus I've got a family. I've still got a family, yeah. a great family. And, um, you know, how can I not be grateful for that? Um, and it's a beautiful world. I think, you know, uh, there's so much out there. Life is, is, is worth living and and as you said you know seth wouldn't have wanted you to mourn forever yeah. some days are hard you know and uh, i guess most days i probably shed a tear uh, on on most days at, at some stage oh, yeah. but that doesn't mean that as you say that you can't laugh that you can't celebrate right. and 
you know, I'm looking for I'm looking for hope. I'm looking to try and provide what what hope I I can to other people. And you know, one of the things about the, the sort of charity that I'm involved in is that we're trying to make it clear that this is about life and hope, not death and despair. Yeah. Sure, it comes from a, a, a position of real real despair, right. but what we're trying to to give back in in Ross's name and I'm sure in in Seth's name is is something positive mm-hmm. you know and, and hopefully you know in my case that's just to those people who who go through those dark times I just want to make it clear that there is there is survival there is hope and uh, there is help out there and we want to show people where that help is I just feel compelled to make sure that Seth's footprint on the world is stronger with him not being here than if he would have been here. And only I and those close to him can continue that because he can't do it anymore. And I think that's, you know, with, with grandkids now involved, you know, Charlie and Brighton, you know, they, they're going to have some tough questions that they're going to ask grandpa, you know, when they get older. And I think, for us to stop these cycles uh, from repeating, because a lot of times these things do repeat, um, the the percent you probably know the percentages of children whose parents took their own lives. You know they have a higher percentage, I would guess, of suicidal. I'm just guessing. Um, no different than That's alcoholics true. or you know people that are addicted. They have a higher propensity to go down those roads. But we can break that cycle. We don't have to accept that narrative. We don't have to say, okay, that's that happened to you. Now that defines you. No, it does. It doesn't have to be that way. We we are free to tell ourselves any story we want, Mike. And um, I think as an advocate, you know, I, I'm a little bit further down the road. I'm six years into this. Seth died in 16, but my wife just died in June of 21 of alcohol. So, you know, that's fresh as in Ross's death is fresh to you. Um, but, you know, I go through my each day trying to figure out ways that I can leave a legacy in Seth's name and Prudence's name, not necessarily my name. Um, I think that'll take care of itself if I do the best that I can in mental health advocacy. Um, let me talk to you about some of the projects since Ross passed. I see the poster behind you. I want to spend some time on the on the baton, baton, baton of hope that people here in the States can relate to my living under tour that I did. RV around the country for 95 days. You guys are doing something similar, but you're not doing it in an RV. <laughs> you're doing it on foot. Um, I'm so curious to hear about the genesis behind the, the Baton of Hope, um, how, you can, how you're going to pull this off, how the support's been, um, and really curious to see where you, you have kind of settled into some advocacy and how you see the next um, generation of parents that are going through these things, how we can really start to change the narrative. Yeah, well, the, the, the story began when I met Steve Phillip, another bereaved dad who I know that you've had on your yeah. program, a great guy who um, I, I met through our sort of mutual grief. Steve lost his son, Jordan, uh, to suicide. Uh, we got together one day. We didn't know each other. We, we met up, had a coffee. And we got talking and um, we were talking about the fact that so many people say, oh, yeah, but this is so complicated. Can we really get to the bottom of it? There are so many different strands and elements involved. And and we kind of said, no, no, in some ways it's simple that everybody who takes their life, that there is a common denominator. And that is the complete loss of hope. And what could we do to to just bring some kind of hope to people? And um, fast forward a, a, a few months and a company called Thomas Light, who are based here in the UK and have a royal warranty, they're goldsmiths and silversmiths, to the royal family oh, wow. um, founders and said they liked what we were doing and, and said, would you like somebody to design and craft the uh, the, the baton of hope? And, um, you know, we tried to play it cool, but uh, <laughs> we basically snapped the hand off and said, uh, yes, please. Yeah. And, uh, 
So they came on board. They've been brilliant. They're currently uh, crafting the the baton. What we wanted really was what we think are what we um, have described as the Olympic torch for medical uh, for for mental health. Mm-hmm. You know, there's Olympic torch that sort of symbolises a celebration largely of physical health, and we wanted to try to identify some kind of symbol that would become potent and recognisable that would carry optimism and a sense of responsibility you know it's a it's a baton right like in a relay Mm. race that you pass it to each other and whoever takes the baton takes responsibility so we wanted to pass it around the uk and 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 spread the message that you know we have universal responsibility for suicide prevention whether you're at the highest levels of government formulating health strategy or suicide prevention strategy or if it's just an extra message an extra text to your mate to say how are you really Mm -hmm. you know or a hand on the shoulder just a smile we've all got a a role to play and this is the idea of of baton of hope and it's just it really has taken off we would never have imagined that day when we sat over coffee you know trying to think about what was the best thing to do with our lives and our grief we would never have imagined that things would would grow as, as fast as they have, and um, we're attracting huge interest uh, in the UK. Uh, there's interest from around the world. We've had a lot of interest from the States and Australia in particular uh, about whether you know a, a similar uh, project could be carried out there. And um, yeah, I've basically, I've never worked so hard in my life. And uh, you know, I've worked hard in my life, but never this. I would hard. agree with that. I, I've ne- kind of nestled into this place where I don't even consider it work because it just becomes part of breathing for me. Um, and I'm sure you would be the same way. Yeah, I'm. We even at our last board meeting, we talked about what you guys are doing and possibly trying to figure a way to emulate something like that here, whether it's across the state of Iowa or the Midwest or something like that similar to what the tour was last year in an rv you know that was 95 days and we made it to 38 states and met with 35 nonprofits. but you know uh i just want to always think of ways to honor those that are not here because again 820 i don't know about the uk but this is just a this staggering number mike there's 825 americans every single day that die by the deaths of despair, alcohol, suicide, and overdose, 825. Now, when I make that statement at a presentation that I'm giving, people will go, wow, that's, that's horrific. I said, well, what's horrific is the emphasis on the death statistic. It doesn't have to take death to destroy a family. You know, we had six years of a horrific experience that adversely affected our family unit with Seth's addiction journey for six years, trying to get him help and understand what he was doing. I'd never done drugs, so I didn't, I I was an alcoholic for 32 years, Mike, and I quit after Seth died, but I could relate to the alcoholism, but I couldn't relate to the drugs. And so the fact is that the media tends to focus on the deaths and I'm like, yeah, that's we need to do that, but none of those people are coming back. But the ones that are alive, we have a chance to keep them alive. And so in the States, we have harm reduction. I'm sure you guys have similar areas with substance abuse where there's safe needle exchanges, fentanyl test strips, you know, trying to keep people that one more day mentality. And think of, um, and I don't know, maybe you know this, but there was a suicide advocate that was talking about the Golden Gate Bridge here in San Francisco, where there's apparently high suicide rates of people jumping. And I guess, I don't know if this is a true or not. Maybe you know the story. Maybe there's something similar where you live, where they put like a net underneath and, and some people that actually jumped thought they were, you know, jumping to their death. Well, the ones that landed in the net and then they talked to them later, it's like a high percentage of them, the moment they stepped off, regretted their decision but they were already in motion. They couldn't stop. So it makes you wonder is that that net, we need to provide that net in society that when kids consider suicide or consider putting a needle in their arm with heroin, um, you know, or drinking to the point where their liver shuts down, we have to have a net 
And what you and I and Steve and all the other wonderful advocates are trying to do is provide that net to get these kids one more day. I always think to myself, what happens if Seth would have tested his heroin and saw there was fentanyl in it? And what if he decided that that was the day he was going to quit? Who, who to say that maybe that was his sober date? Like mine is December 24th of 17. I didn't think on December 23rd, I would, I'd quit drinking, but I did the next day. Well, we need to provide kids one more day, any way that we can. And again, going back to specifically suicide, what do you think are some of the things we can do to get kids to make it one more day, to make them, like you said, you know, he made his decision, but obviously you're in agreement that was not the right decision. Um, how do we get kids to see that more clearly when they're in the moment of despair? That, that That's the really tough part for me is how, how do we... We owe it to them, Mike. I mean, that's the thing. They, Gen Z is like the first generation to admit that they have mental health issues. I know your son was a little bit older, but, you know, Gen Z goes all the way up to about 26, I think. What what can we do to provide them that opportunity so they can make it to the next day and maybe start riding that ship, you know? I struggle with that. I think yeah, th there are so many areas, so many answers to, to that question. And I think, you know, to go right back to basics, I think the thing that we need to do, first of all, is talk and yeah. listen, encourage children to talk and be willing to listen, um, to, to validate what they're saying. I think we need to turn the prism so that we're seeing things in a, in a different way to how we are at the moment, because... You know, here in the UK, when suicide is the biggest killer of under 35s, not COVID, not cancer, mm. not drugs, not road accidents, not war, um, you know, it's suicide. Uh, you know, we have to ask ourselves as a society, are there some basic changes that we have to make? And I believe that, that there are. Uh, even down to the language that, that we use. You know, we often refer to people who self-harm as attention-seeking when actually they're attention-needing. Hmm. You know, the very fact that yeah. we still commonly use the phrase commit suicide when that word commit, yeah. um, as you will know, goes back to a time certainly here uh, when suicide was considered to be a sin and a, and a right. crime. And in my lifetime, people could be and were put in prison after um, recovering from a suicide. Yeah, that's just, I can't attempt. believe that. And I, yeah. No. Uh, uh, and uh, was I really part of a, a world? How could society right. have, have even thought about doing that? These are more enlightened times, but 60 odd years on, we're still using the language of the, the, the dark ages. Uh, we're still very reluctant to open up, to normalize the conversation around suicide. You know, this huge stigma around the subject that we have to break through. We have to get to a point where children are comfortable, you know, using appropriate language and, and sensitivity and compassion. There has to be a way that we can get to people before they reach that moment of of, of crisis. I think it was um, Archbishop Desmond Tutu who said that we've got to stop fishing people out of the river and go uh, downstream to find yeah. out why they jumped right. in, in the first place. And I think this is so true in every area of society, in the media, in education, in business, you know, the, the, the workplace, uh, everywhere. We need to question our basic approach to mental health, first of all. And I, I don't know how things are in the States, but we spend terrible. They're, they're, they're terrible. a minimum amount, a minuscule amount of money, time, yeah. attention, purpose, you name it, uh, on mental health compared with physical mm -hmm. health. And the fact that, you know, you can go to hospital um, and with a broken finger and okay, here you would have maybe have to wait several hours, but you get seen right. that day. Ross was turned away and told, bye-bye, come back in six yeah. months' time. And, you know, we're just one family. He was just one, one man. Um, 
and there are so many people out there who are, who are going through that. So I think many, many areas, uh, you know, we had a headline in our newspapers here in the UK just a few weeks ago, a member of parliament who took some time off with depression. And the headline was so-and-so MP uh, admits to taking time off with depression. Admits. Yeah, exactly. Why? That's terrible. Why? Yeah. I wouldn't admit to a chest infection <laughs> or COVID. Yep. Why would yeah. I admit to what it's a, because it's a moral failing in the eyes of society? Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, vulnerability, particularly in men, is regarded as uh, very much as a as a weakness. Um, and I've set up two talking groups. I wanted to do something apart from the baton of hope. Uh, I wanted to do something hands on and set up two talking cr- uh, groups based around football clubs in the city where I live in in Yorkshire. And uh, it's amazing just the difference that it's made. We've been going now for a year and a half um, for the, the first one. And it's amazing the difference it's made and the fact that, you know, giving men an excuse in, in inverted commas to open up about their it, it, what's going on inside their heart, their, you know, emotions um, has really worked. And, and it, it's lifted my spirits to... To, to see that happening. Let me ask you a question, Mike, because this came up yesterday on Twitter. I saw an article where someone um, had lost a loved one to uh, drug uh, poisoning. I used to say overdose, but Seth was murdered with, you know, fentanyl. There's no overdose with fentanyl. It's, it kills you. Um, is that they were saying, you know, um, this person was kind of struggling with their advocacy because it's hard to raise money. And it's just, it's like, you know, you have three, you have four adolescents that die, let's say, or just four people that die. One is suicide, one is alcoholism, one is overdose, and one is cancer. It's four deaths, but the way that they are stigmatized is completely separate. I think, and again, I am not trying to uh, demean the the pain of somebody that lost a child in any any way, shape, or form to me doesn't really matter. Loss is loss, but society says, this is what society says. And I know this because I struggle with raising money and because Seth died by drugs, by fentanyl. And it's like, people will say, well, I have a hundred bucks to give, but you know, Seth kind of made his own bed. He made his own decision. He knew the risks, i.e. it's a moral failing. He chose to do heroin that day, but this other person that died, you know, car accident or cancer or whatever, they didn't have a choice. And so the people are more likely to be simple or empathetic in those regards. Uh, I saw someone post that on Twitter and I've always thought this, but I've been very afraid to make those statements because I didn't want to get, you know, canceled by people that are thinking I'm just an angry dad. I'm like, no, that's, unless you've been in these shoes, you can't see the stigma that I see every day. If I'm in the same room of other deceased people and I bring up drugs and alcohol in my life, um, there's a different sense of how that's perceived. Uh, do you feel the same way with suicide? Is there in the UK, is there kind of a sense of a moral failing with that person that they, they kind of made that choice? Definitely. And, and, you know, the examples that I've just used, I think underline that the fact that, you know, we can refer to someone as having admitted to having uh, had depression. Um, you know, it, it suggests that there's a, a level of, of guilt yeah. there about having had uh, depression and, and why should anybody feel guilty uh, uh, about that um I, I think you're absolutely right jeff i think that grief is grief yeah and you know however you've lost somebody uh, especially if you've lost a, ch- a child you know that that is absolutely life changing mm-hmm. um but there certainly you know i think one thing that i'm glad about one thing that I'm grateful for is the fact that, you know, you and I can have this conversation now. It's not so many years ago when people really weren't having these conversations. And I'm grateful to younger generations for pushing the boundaries yeah. a little bit and advancing yeah. the public discourse about mental health and suicide. They're the ones who've made it easier for society to open up. There's still a long, long way to go. And there's still so much that we can we can do. But at least things are starting to um, 
be uh, feel a lot healthier. You know, I sometimes draw a parallel between suicide and child abuse that 20 years ago, child abuse was in a, a dark little corner mm-hmm. and children were told the default advice was don't say anything, right. suppress right. it, take it on the chin, right. you deal with it. Um, and now, because we've normalized conversations, we've shone a spotlight on the subject, we talk about it, children know that there's a place to go, children know that there are people who they can speak to, and lives are being saved. I still think of some things like suicide of being in that that same murky corner, and we need to drag it out, shine a spotlight on it, talk about it, be open about it, acknowledge the scale of this social catastrophe, because we've got to acknowledge it before we can do anything about it. Um, but we're we're moving towards that, and I think that is a, an entirely positive and, and, and hopeful thing. Yeah, I'm, 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 I remain optimistic uh, each day, even though when I see the numbers in the states where they're just, you have to really look hard to find any statistic that gets better. You know, it's just um, COVID really complicated things. I don't know if this is true in the UK, but it, I saw a study a while back where they said the highest year over year for suicide percentage increase, not numbers, was in the States, it was white middle-aged men, basically, you know, us. And, you know, again, I can see where a lot of things hit men in their mid fifties. Maybe they aren't as financially successful. Maybe their appearance is starting to really change. They look in the mirror and they feel 30, but they look 70, you know, cause they haven't taken care of themselves. Maybe their marriage is falling apart. You know, the rates of kids that go off to college and then immediately spouses get divorced once they have to spend time together. (laughs) Kids are like a convenient distraction to the integrity of a marriage sometimes. But I can, I can relate to that, but that's, that's just like, it doesn't have to be this way. That's the thing. It's like, we don't have to accept these statistics as the way it is. It are, the statistics are where we should be spending our focus. That's the way I look at it. You know, it doesn't yeah, define I th- us. I think we have, no, and we have to challenge the status quo because, uh-huh. again, here in the UK, the suicide statistics have stagnated for 15 years. Um, and we've got to look at ourselves. We've got to look in the mirror and ask ourselves, what is it that we're not getting right? Mm-hmm. You know, why haven't we made a single change really in 15 years? Um, and I think it's a root and branch uh, review of, of the, the, the methods that we've been using, the attitudes that we've been adopting and the ways that we've been looking at things. I think we have to really, as I said earlier, turn that prism around and start seeing the world in a different way. You know, we've got to ask the authorities what it is that they are not getting right. Uh, because globally, you know, I, I think the figures um, don't uh, change that much, haven't changed that much. There have been some periods where suicide uh, figures have, have, have fallen and, and periods where they've risen. Mm-hmm. But basically, again, you know, I think we're we're stuck and we've got to be radical in the way that we think about uh, tackling it now. I think, you know, what's your thoughts on the generation of kids that have... Um a low sense of meaning and purpose? Where, where does that come into play for the well-being of, of, a, of an individual who's feeling like they're not worthy? Um, are there ways that we can get them to understand that they are worthy and that, you know, to give them the sense of purpose in their, in their life so they can value their life uh, more highly? Again, I think it's about being validated, and it's and it's about you know appealing to who we are as as human beings. I think a lot of the humanity has been stripped out of uh, our lives, uh, you know, due to online and and people, you know, relating to bots uh, instead of speaking to you know real human, people yeah. speaking to real people. We've become more and more isolated. Um, almost sleepwalked into, I believe, into a situation where, you know, we've forgotten about the basics of what it is to be uh, a human being. And, you know, I do 
feel for children growing up in an age where for the very first time perhaps in history we've seriously um had to face the possibility that this planet may not survive mm-hmm. uh you know for for as long as we thought it was going to survive i think anybody growing up with that thought going on in, in the background you know in, in in the subconscious or wherever i think that's a difficult difficult thing you know you and i as kids we had the sort of or i at least i think i'm a, a fair bit older than you do, <laughs> you know i mean, I remember the Cold War quite clearly and, you know, the threat of mm-hmm. nuclear war. But to to have that, you know, accepted as part of uh, society's dialogue now, that the, the planet is in a mess, mm-hmm. that's a hard thing for kids. And especially when you've got all these technological changes that do remove people from people, you know, um, and you know i'm not you know i'm not against technology this is fantastic that i can talk to you now you know across the pond and we can have this this conversation it's brought us many many benefits but i think we just have to ask ourselves whether we're taking too much of the humanity out of it sometimes there's such an irony and i mention this almost every time i'm either on a podcast or i'm uh, hosting one the irony is how connected we are you know, I mean, more than ever in human history. But I think when we look in the mirror, we feel a disconnect. Like we're just not really looking at anything. And that's that lack of confidence, lack of self-worth. I think for a lot of people, um, and I've occasionally went down this road where as good as social media has been for me to meet people like you and, um, Steve and all the other great advocates I've met, um, we have a tendency to compare too much where, um, I think sometimes I went through this early on in my advocacy that wasn't doing enough that, Hey, you know, Mike's doing this. I need to step up my game. And so as we tell kids not to have imposter syndrome, I think adults can be just as, as, as fallible in that area where, um, Facebook and LinkedIn, these things are great. But I think sometimes, um, if people are not, I try to be very intentional in my posts and try to be less, you know, braggadocious or so, so forth. So if somebody acknowledges me for an award or I get, um, to speak somewhere, I try to, I try to spin it where the post is the less about me. I can do the better and try to bring in maybe a story that I met somebody and focus on them. And then at the same time, acknowledge that, Hey, you know what? We're there. We're doing good. If you want to be so inclined to support us, here's how you do that. But trying to really pivot, Mike, so this whole thing isn't a me story, but it's a we story. You know, it's there is no Mike. There's no Jeff. There's just Mike and Jeff. There's just we. And I think as advocates, we get so dialed into our own personal story that it becomes all consuming. And I've been very intentional in the last year to make my posts very different uh, and not spend it just constantly putting and I hate to say this because I'm not trying to be disparaging to anybody out there that does this, but if I just every day put pictures of Seth on LinkedIn, I, I will promise you people will get a little bit immune to it. They'll just, they'll, they won't read what I put because they'll seen, they've seen the picture a hundred times. And it's like, I'm, try, I'm trying to be better at bringing more people into to this story. So the network gets out there even better, you know? Um, and it took me a long time because the first two years, it was all about me, all about Seth, all about me, all about Seth. And I'm like, now I want to hear about, you know, Ross, I want to hear about Charlie. I want to hear about the other people in your family. I want to hear about the charity that you're working with. And, um, you know, uh, I think that's important that we include the other people in our stories. And so more people can relate. Right. Uh, absolutely right, Jeff. It's difficult. It is hard because... because it's, it's an addiction in itself our stories become very all consuming. Yeah, and I, I do genuinely believe that people with lived experience do have something that they can offer. Mm-hmm. They do have something that they can put into the the process of making things better in terms of you know suicide prevention or, or you know addiction, whatever it is. Um, and I think you've made you know so many uh, very astute points there that the the, the loneliness that, that you referred to. You know, I think it's the unspoken pandemic that despite being so connected and never being so connected in in 
in the history of our of our uh, uh, race that that we are fundamentally very lonely mm-hmm. and, and you know, calls to mental health charities and um, uh, uh, have increased incredibly uh, over the past few years. Um, but I, I think you're right. I think it's about collaboration. I think, you know, we need to come together, speak with one voice. One thing that I've kind of discovered is that, you know, certainly here, the um, suicide prevention community is very fragmented mm. and each each group go and do their own thing and very valuable things. There are a lot of yeah. good, decent, hardworking people out there who are achieving some amazing things. Mm-hmm. But sometimes I think we need to come together and, and be more collaborative. And this is one of the things that we're hoping to do with Baton of Hope is to say, this is not our yeah. charity. This is not our campaign. It's a platform. It's your platform. It's your campaign you use it you know because ultimately we're all trying to do the same thing yeah and that's to sort of save lives or uh, enrich the, the lives of, of people who um, find themselves in a, in a situation of despair so i think you, you i know, noticed that really absolutely. early mike in my advocacy the first year or two when seth died and, and i started my book and started really started my podcast i just had my 100th episode last week so been under three years, but, you know, had a great run so far with it. But I noticed that there was this, you say fragmented, I say siloed, is that there was this, I'd meet somebody here, maybe locally that their son had maybe taken their, their life or, or they had passed away by, you know, su- um, uh, drugs or something. And it's like, hear their story, hear my story. And then we'd kind of part ways and, and, I'd see them making some great things and I'm doing things. And I'm like, is there any reason why we can't do this together? Is there any reason why, even if we're not joining our organizations, but show me the downside in collaboration, you know? And I think the answer is a lot of nonprofits chase the same money. And when you're in a smaller area, like, like Cedar Rapids here, even though it's the second largest uh, city in Iowa behind Des Moines, um, you know, I pretty much know a lot of the players here in town and we run fundraisers. We kind of look and see when the other ones are being run. So they're not back to back necessarily. And we're trying to be respectful. And I know people jump from nonprofits to nonprofits. So you, you kind of take human capital as well, but it's like that model hasn't worked and it doesn't work. And I think we just need to roll the sleeves up and in your case, reach across the pond and say, Hey Mike, you know, uh, I want to, I want to help out. I want to, you know, I can't physically come there, but how can I help you guys out either as a sponsor or partner or we'll donate t-shirts or water bottles or whatever we can do to ship out there to help you. And then, you know, hopefully we can reciprocate that and you can say, Hey, Jeff, I I love what you're doing on your tour. Uh, We want to give some pamphlets or, you know, magnets or whatever. Someone tell me where that is, where that is, where there's a downside in any of that. I, I can't see it. So why don't we do more of it? Yeah, and I, I think, again, this is an area where there's opportunity that is created by technology. Right. You know, social media means that we can easily share things. We can share our influence. We can bring our influence together. Uh, so it's it, it's greater than the, the sum of its parts. And, uh, yeah, I think, you know, competition's a good thing. And, you know, there has to be an element of competition. Yeah. Uh, even in the sort of voluntary sector, there, there will be times when people are competing, but there are going to be lots of other times as well, when we're kind of doing the same thing. Uh, and, you know, to, to, to affect real, tangible, measurable change, right. we have to uh, come together. And it's, I suppose it's one reason everybody deals with this in a different way. And this is no criticism uh, in in any respect. You know, there are a lot of charities out there, as I say, doing fantastic right. work. But part of me wanted to create the Ross McCarthy Foundation. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, when I thought about what Ross stood for, uh, he wasn't that kind of person. Mm-hmm. He didn't you know, go out to draw attention to himself in, in that mm-hmm. way. Um, and I wanted something that everybody could unite behind. Mm-hmm. And this is why with Steve, we, we thought long and hard about, you know, first of all, really going to the drawing board and coming up with this this symbol that we could use to unite people. Right. Um, 
and hopefully that that's what we've come up with and this is what we're taking around the the, the uk in summer we're going to 12 cities in in 12 days and then we're hoping to make it an annual event and cover all the other areas that we haven't covered in the first year in, in subsequent years but we've got lots of different things going on as well we're putting together an education charter a workplace charter something again that's tangible um, so that we you know that we create a legacy it's not a stunt you know right it's not just right. a, a party yeah yeah we want to be optimistic it's the baton of hope after all but we also want to hopefully you know create change i i don't want sympathy. Um, uh, don't get me wrong. The compassion that's been shown towards me and, and towards our family has been truly uh, hardening mm-hmm. and it lifts your spirits. Um, and, you know, to have interest from, from people such as yourself, Jeff, personally, you know, is, is of enormous help to, to me. But we want to um, spread that around. Um, and it's, you know, it, as I said earlier, it's the baton of hope is for everyone. We all have that universal responsibility and, you know, we hope that as many people engage with, with the baton as, as can. Maybe someday the baton could be over here and we could continue the journey in the States uh, or something equivalent like that where the two, you know, your your program and, and what we're working on could connect together Um Obviously, I can't drive the RV over there and pick it up, but, (laughs) um, you know, we could figure out something. But, you know, I I like to think really big to the point where a lot of people think I'm probably a bit loony. Um, But that's just um, the way I think you're wired, too, is that, you know, I could do a a little tiny fundraiser here and raise some money or we could do something really historic and and move the needle. Let me wrap up the show with this. Um, I'm curious on what Mike McCarthy does for self-care. What do you do each day or each week? What are what I share at length about my self care, and um, I will tell you the Christmas after my wife died, I had my only brush with suicidal ideation. Um, I share it publicly. Um, I'll tell you, I was seconds away from ending my life. Very happy that whatever thought popped into my head that, that moment, my two boys and other people close to me popped in my head. I didn't do it, but I do things now to prevent ever going back to that position. I know, I know how that happened. I know why it happened. I'm curious on what do you do every day to maintain your sanity and your peace of mind and um, your strength and your courage? I mean, what's your self-care routine? I think, you know, just, just answering Ross's call helps. Um, You know, it makes me, feel that there was and still is some some value to his life and who he was and and what he stood for and i also try to listen um you know i take these two talking groups for for men and and again you know listening is just a word but i think truly listening and understanding uh what's going on uh, in people's heads and hearts uh, again, it helps me to realise that that in some ways we're we're all in this together. Um, that nobody's alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and speaking to people like you, Jeff, and recognising that um, you know I'm not alone as an individual. We're not alone as a as a family, as a sort of worldwide community of us um, is what gets me through mm-hmm. and, and what makes me want to to go on living and it's back to you know what we were saying earlier about uh, gratitude there is so much out there that i'm grateful for the grief is eternal and i have to accept that uh, it's not going to to go away uh, and i've you know learning to to accept that but i'm also learning to see that there is um, so much to live for it's a beautiful world there is hope there is help out there. There is com- compassion. There is kindness. Um, and also this determination that we can change this. We can do something. We can change lives uh, if, if we work together. And I truly, truly believe that. 
you know that that together we 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 can change things and uh, yeah i hope one day that if we can bring the baton of hope or baton as you say i love the way that you say baton <laughs> by the way uh, that maybe one day we can hold that uh, baton together yeah well i'll tell uh, you yeah, this is not maybe one day we will um i uh i like challenges i like always having something bigger out there hanging and uh, i certainly would find a way to either have living undeterred participate or our mental wellness app that we're launching this summer uh brighton uh, which is named after my granddaughter um get somehow that involved uh that we can work together at some capacity uh Last question I'm going to ask you is something I was asked by someone the other day that said, Jeff, I have a teenage daughter that I think it has suicidal ideation. What's the one question I can ask her without feeling like triggering or judging? What's, what's a door opener a parent can say to a child to start this conversation on the right foot? Again, I think it goes back to that word, listen, mm -hmm. you know, that, that one of the greatest things that we can do for our kids is to hear them. Um, when I look back, one of the things that perhaps I got wrong as a dad, you know, you just want to yeah. fix your kids. Yep. You just want to do whatever you need to do to, to fix them. And, you know, you're going to do this and you're going to do that. And we'll do this together. And, um, and maybe... I thought too much along those lines and not enough along just just listening. I think now it's widely recognised that, you know, if you suspect that somebody is uh, going through a period of suicidal ideation, that you ask them, yeah. you know, are you contemplating suicide? Um, you know, the times when we thought that raising the subject would trigger yeah. suicide are over, that, that myth has well and truly been debunked. Yeah. And uh, I think, you know, again, talking about normalizing the conversation, we have to do that. But more than anything, people want to be validated. We all want to be validated and we all want to be want to be heard. Well, we have um, Ross, Seth and Prudence pushing us forward every day, you know, pulling us out of the abyss, as I like to say. And anybody listening here, anybody following, you know, your story and mine. There, there's somebody you don't have to go very far may not be your immediate family may have to be your second layer it could be a neighbor coworker. but you know somebody that is having these thoughts uh is addicted to substance or alcohol and we need to be there like you said listening is very key and being less judgmental uh something i struggled with i think i probably judged my son and my wife frequently um and again in hindsight i can't go back and change that but i can change how i react going forwards so there's a lesson in everything uh, i really admire you know meeting you and having a chance to follow you and uh, i i'm very confident that you know we'll find some way we can work together um, we have two similar of mission and passion and you know the the irony is that between you and i we have lost somebody in each of the three diseases of deaths of despair, suicide, alcohol, and overdose. And, you know, just you and I, two men, we can add three people to that. Um, and so draw a line in the sand. Something's got to give, something's got to stop. You know, we just, uh, we got to right the ship and you and I and an army of mental health warriors on our side, you know, with us, not behind us or in front of us, but with us, we can get it done. I'm confident we can get this done. Um, you know, uh, how do people reach you, Mike, if people want to follow you, what's the best way to get in touch with you, you know, from. Yeah, well, I, the, the website is the best way to make contact with us. It's uh, org, And, um, yeah, uh, anybody who's interested, please have a look at the website. There's a, if you want to register your interest in the Baton of Hope, you can do that on the When's website. When's the date of it? And, uh, yeah. uh, the date of the actual tour is June the uh, June the. I'm going to look at my whiteboard now. <laughs> June the 25th to July the 6th. So we're starting in Glasgow in Scotland, okay. and we're ending in the capital in London on July 
on July the 6th. And if there's anybody around in the UK then who wants to join in on any of the legs, please come along. Um, it, it's for everybody. And uh, yeah, we stand with you. Uh, if you want to be involved, we stand with well, you. Well, you can count our support at some level. Uh, I can reach out to you later, have our team figure out a way to support you guys. Um, uh, and again, really, really appreciate the time you took uh, to talk with us and for our, our followers here to hear more about your story. And um, I think you're doing great things, man. I'm really proud of you for what you've accomplished in two years, you know? Well, the, the, the feelings mutual, Jeff, and, uh, you know, can I just say thank you. Thank you for your interest. Thank you for everything that living undeterred is, is doing. And uh, thank goodness that you're here. The world needs people like you. So thank you. Well, thank you. Back at, back at you. And um, again, take a deep breath uh, for people who just navigated and traveled this hour with us. Uh, I appreciate you staying with us. This can be a tough topic. Um, I, I give trigger warnings up front and sometimes I end it with a little bit of a reminder that, you know, um, we're here to help. There's lots of people that are willing to listen. There's lots of, or in, in the States, we have the 988 crisis number now, the national 24 seven, great. Uh, it's not just for suicidal ideation, it's crisis. Anybody in crisis mode can contact the, the number when it launched. Um, you know, it started off pretty slow, but now it's, it's, it's getting a lot of, uh, a lot of use, which is great. Uh, it's sad, but it's great. We need to have as many nets out there to catch people that we can to give them a second chance. So with that, love you like a brother, man, appreciate what you're doing. And, um, let's, uh, certainly stay in touch. Okay. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you.